Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. Uh, my guest is Sarah Pertassi, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Puget Sound. We will discuss her book, The Philosophy of Envy, which is published by Cambridge University Press. So welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Brian. My pleasure. I'm really glad that our, our mutual friend, Matt Teichman, uh, introduced me to you and to your work, which I really enjoyed reading. Uh, but for listeners who haven't yet had the pleasure of reading uh, your book, I wonder if we could start with kind of a big picture question. So you, you style your book as a defense, or at least a partial defense of envy. And we'll, we'll get into that later in the interview, I think. But I wonder if you could start by just talking a little bit about what you mean specifically by envy and how you would compare it to other emotions or virtues or vices, in particular uh, jealousy, which you talk about in the book. Yes, of course. Um, So I define envy as an aversive response to a perceived disadvantage or inferiority vis-a-vis toward a similar other with regard to a, a, a domain um, sorry, with regard to a good that is relevant to a domain of self-importance, which motivates to uh, overcome that disadvantage. Now, I myself got tripped <laughs> uh, presenting a definition that I know very well because it's a mouthful. Um, so let me break it down a little bit for you and the listeners um, and give you an example, which usually helps. Um, before I do that, I do want to clarify that I don't think that my definition is particularly controversial. And it is a definition that I think we um, we can derive both from uh, empirical evidence, but also we find a lot of these elements already in the history of philosophy, starting as early as Aristotle. So the definition of envy as an emotion that I adopt is not terribly controversial. More things will be, other things will be more controversial later. So I said that envy is an aversive response. And by aversive, um, I mean to use this as a technical notion in psychology that means the affect is negative. It feels bad. It feels unpleasant at the very least, if not outright painful. And so it's this unpleasant feeling that we get in response to perceiving a similar other, someone who's similar to, uh, to us in some important respect that I'm going to talk about later, um, so with, res- with in regard to the similar vis-a-vis the similar other, we perceive ourselves to be uh, somehow inferior or disadvantaged. We come off short in some sense. And uh, this has to do with a good, um, with something that we perceive uh, as good. And that also, however, has to do with a domain of self-importance or that matters to our, to our uh, sense of identity. And because this emotion is unpleasant, it motivates us to um, overcome this perceived disadvantage in some ways or other, and I can be more specific later. So let me give you an example. I often use myself uh, for this example. So uh, I uh, let's imagine that I'm envious of um, a fellow philosopher. Um, and what does it mean that I'm envious of this fellow philosopher? It means that I'm feeling this unpleasant feeling, this unpleasant emotion in myself. Um, and why is that? Well, maybe because I perceive this other person to be a better philosopher 
than me. They have maybe, maybe they work in the emotions field like me. They have published not just one, but two books already. And their second book is, is very successful. And um, maybe this person is roughly my age. Perhaps it's my gender. Uh, she's also a woman. Um, perhaps she even has children. And so the fact that she is doing better than me, you know, she's similar to me in age, gender, uh, social status. And so her success, Aristotle would say, feels like a reproach to me. If she's already writing her, has already published her second book, well, you know, I'm struggling to even start thinking about my second book. Well, that says something about me. And this is something I don't particularly like, right? It's, it, there's something um, that makes me feel bad about myself. And this is not a person, say, sometimes I use the example of, you know, maybe a colleague who's a great soccer player, right? Um, I don't care about soccer. It doesn't affect my, of course, almost every anyone is better than me at soccer, it turns out. And I don't mind at all, right? Even someone who's similar to me in some respect, imagine the very same colleague, she's a great soccer player. I'm like, oh, good for you. You know, I'm going to come to your uh, game and cheer you up, right? But instead, because that's because I don't care about soccer, but I really care about being a good philosopher. It's part of my self-identity. So it's a domain of self-importance, social psychologists would say. And so we know from uh, evidence from, from work on, on social comparison that these kind of comparisons really make us feel bad when we feel outperformed by others. And finally, because all aversive emotions, all negative affects, affect, affect emotions, um, encourage us to do something about it. That's why, you know, that's how they were shaped by evolution, right? They have this important function of uh, spurring up to do to do something or other. In this case, um, we want to overcome our disadvantage. And so um, I can get more into the details uh, how, of how that's happened, but that's roughly what envy is. Now, you also asked me how I differs from other emotions. And again, I can give more complete answers later, but briefly, especially with regard to jealousy. And again, here too, I don't espouse a particularly controversial view, although there are others. I think of envy as having fundamentally to do with lack and jealousy as having fundamentally to do with loss. Or in both cases, we're talking about perceived lack or loss. So for instance, typically we talk about jealousy with regard, say, to a romantic relationship. Jealousy, like envy, they're similar in some regards because it's also an emotion where a subject, an agent, feels this emotion um, with regard to a good that we something we care about. And there is someone else that is the target, we say, of our emotion. Um, and so I'm envious of someone when I feel like they have something I don't have, to simplify. And I am jealous of someone when I feel like they're encroaching on something that is valuable, when they are threatening to take away something I already have. So in this regard, in a slogan, we can say that envy, sorry, jealousy guards what envy covets. So they are complementary emotions, right? Um, but at the same time, sometimes they co-occur. So imagine in a case of uh, romantic rivalry, I might be both jealous and envious of a rival, right? Perhaps there is this like, you know, 
interesting person who has been flirting with my partner. Um, and so I'm jealous because this is my partner. I have a special relationship with them. I want to protect that relationship. But perhaps I think they are more attractive or more humorous uh, or richer or what have you. And so I'm also envious of these traits that I perceive them as having and that I lack. Mm. <clears throat> so in, in your book, you observe that this envy jealousy distinction can be slippery and mm. sometimes the two merge together uh, especially when the terms are used in english as opposed yes. to in other languages and i thought that was really interesting i wonder if you could talk about why you think that happens specific to english how other languages differ and why you think the distinction is important yeah you know, this is actually really interesting because I have a first personal experience of having to learn how to use jealous in the, at least in, you know, in American English, in the idiom that I'm most familiar with. Because in Italian, um, I do think that people tend to be a little more specific. So the consensus in social psychology is that jealousy and envy in their paradigmatic cases, at least, are distinct emotions with different structures, different motivations, and so on. Um, and so in Italian, I would use uh, invidia and gelosia, which are envy and jealousy, as distinct terms. And then when I came to the U.S., I realized that people sometimes were saying jealous, <laughs> In a way that to me sounded like, well, they mean envious, but they're saying jealous. And what happens is that, um, in, so jealousy seems, there is less moral stigma and less shame connected to jealousy, which makes sense because um, there is a sense in which if I'm entitled, if I perceive myself as being entitled to something, I am also entitled to protect it from threats from external threats. So of course, jealousy can be excessive. See Othello's lesson. Um, so, or Medea, right? We don't want to be excessively jealous. That's pathological. We condemn that. But most of us who are, in, at least those who of us who are in monogamous relationships, tend to think that it's okay to be a little jealous of your partner and mutatis mutandis with your friends and other things that you feel like you own in some sense. And so jealousy is not as stigmatized as envy, which instead seems seems is traditionally also seen as a particularly aggressive emotion that is not just about, you know, wishing you had something the other person doesn't have, but you're motivated to go and get it. And we can get into that later. So it seems that what, but, but because uh, as we will see, there are actually different kinds of envy and some kinds of envy are not as bad as the ones we're usually used to condemn. Then it seems that what happened was that people started using jealous in English to refer to a benign kind of envy. This is done also in Italian. By the way, in Italian, we would say things like, oh, I'm feeling a good kind of envy. In Spanish, people talk about envidia, envidia sana, like a healthy kind of envy. Um, envidia sana, I should say. Um, and in other languages we can talk about later, actually there are distinct terms to talk about different kinds of envy. And so you don't, you don't see that shift as much, but in English, uh, you know, the language just evolved again, at least in American English uh, that I'm more familiar with the language of also that when people say jealous, they either mean jealousy proper, or they mean this kind of, uh, better, this better kind of envy that is less malicious. And so that signals to this, to the, to the listener, to the target, the person who's being told that the agent is jealous, that their, their, their envy is not as malicious. 
Mm. And but this is all, you know, it's 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 a well, this is something that already in the I think starting from the 60s or at least the 80s. Now I I should I should check my sources, but some social psychologists already started noticing this phenomenon. So it's been observed, not just anecdotally, but also a little bit more scientifically. So you also present a kind of taxonomy of envy in your book and kind of describe it with greater particularity, the different ways in which people might feel envy, how they differ from each other, and sort of why we might attribute a different moral valence to each of those ways of feeling envious. I I wonder if you kind of tease those out a little bit so that people can understand. Again, imagine that I say, oh, I'm so jealous that, you know, I going back to our, uh, to my fellow philosopher that I'm a little envious of, um, imagine that I tell her, oh, I'm so jealous your second book is out already. Now, what I'm signaling is a kind of emotion that I feel pretty comfortable sharing. So probably it's not the worst possible kind of envy. And psychologists, social psychologists, starting from uh, the early 2000s, started investigating this kind of phenomenon. And again, in, in this actually was started with, especially with uh, a Dutch uh, psychologist. His name is Niels van de Ven. And in Dutch, it turns out there are two different words for envy. And there are many other languages where that is the case. So if I spoke Dutch, instead of saying I'm a little je- jealous that your, your second book is out, I might use the Dutch term, which I can't pronounce, so I will not use it. And um, and so th- they started studying these two kinds of envy and a distinction between benign and malicious envy was born. And there is quite a bit of empirical evidence that seems to suggest that there are distinct emotions and that benign envy uh, doesn't. So remember, envy is about this perceived disadvantage or inferiority or coming up short or luck. So this is not good. Right. I want to change the status quo. I want to make myself better. And so I can do that in at least two direct ways. I mean, I could cope with envy indirectly, but we'll set that aside. But I can either push myself to the level of my friend who has two books, right? And so work really hard, you know, spurred by this emotion, work really hard and work on my second book. Or I could somehow pull her down. Now, this is not maybe as easily done in this kind of cases, uh, but perhaps I might, I don't know, spread rumors that she cheat, she plagiarized on her book. And maybe if I'm really uh, mischievous, if I'm really sneaky, I can successfully uh, spread rumors that ruin her reputation. Now, of course, that doesn't get me a second book, but it might destroy her reputation enough that my envy um, might be satisfied that way. Uh, in other cases, you know, I can steal the good if it's something that can be stolen. I can uh, ruin, literally ruin what they have. You know, another kid has a bigger ice cream. I can just bump into them and the ice cream is 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 a f- falls on the floor and so on. It turns out that this kind of distinction is already present in Aristotle. Uh, but what's interesting about the philosophical approach to this, to this kind of envy is that philosophers seem to have a different causal explanation for why we feel these two kinds of envy. So psychologists notice that when we feel in control over our, our situation, when we feel confident that we can overcome our inferiority, then we're motivated to feel benign envy. When we feel out of, you know, when we feel like we don't have control, and um, then we feel hostility toward the envied and we want to level down, we want to pull them down to our level. But Aristotle observes that 
an important factor is whether we care for the good itself for its own sake. So if I care about publishing a second book, because I really like philosophy, I want to be a good philosopher. I want to think more about these issues. Uh, it's an accomplishment that I care about for its own sake. And then the fact that this other similar other has it makes me think, well, I could do it too. Uh, and then I am motivated to level up, to emulate this person. But if maybe what I care about is the social reputation, perhaps getting a better job or other things, right? I don't care about the second book, this good for its own sake, um, but I'm just bothered that this other person is doing better than me, perhaps again in the game of social reputation or academia, then I care about pulling her down, right? Because that's what bugs me. And so what I do in my work is that I, I realize that this psychological explanation and this philosophical explanation were actually kind of independent. And in the book, I explain more about, you know, what that means. Like these two factors don't correlate, although there are some things that connect them sometimes, but mostly they're independent. And so if you have two independent variables, you can intersect them and then you get a two by two schema, basically, um, a two by two taxonomy where you can have what I call emulative envy. This is the kind of envy where I feel able to overcome my situation. I feel able to self-improve and therefore I'm motivated to self-improve and emulate the envy. And so maybe I talk to her about her second book and, um, you know, I don't necessarily need to be her best friend, right? I'm envious of her after all, which might make things a little difficult at times, but I want to do, I want to have what she has and this motivates me to do better. And so that's emulative envy. Sometimes, however, maybe I'm a very insecure person and I feel like, oh, I'll never be able to write that second book. But at the same time, I care about the book. I don't care about her doing worse. And so I feel this kind of self-defeating emotion that I call inert envy because it's inert. It doesn't really motivate me. Maybe I'm kind of sulking in my corner and I don't really want to hang out with this person because it causes me pain. It reminds me of my own failure, but I don't have it for her. Right. I think, you know, it's great. She has the book. I just don't really want to be reminded of her success. Or again, it's more not about the book and my personal improvement, but it's about, you know, how it's always her. Right. It's always that person who does better than me. Why does she have to get all the things? And so then. I might want, again, to engage in those kind of sabotaging behaviors, and I feel in control of the situation. But in this particular respect, right, I feel capable of bringing her down, right, perhaps by moral means, and that's aggressive envy. That's the envy that brings us to steal the good, the envied good, instead of sulking in the corner or instead of self-improving. And finally, we have spiteful envy. I often use the example of Iago in Othello's, in Shakespeare's Othello, um, where we really have the kind of envy that spoils the good it covets. Because what happens is that I don't care for the good for its own sake, but I don't think I can successfully steal it, whatever that stealing means in the specific case, which changes depending on the good. And so the only thing I can do is ruin, spoil the good. And so Iago does all these horrible things that result in literally, you know, death and destruction of, of everyone's happiness. But they, but Iago doesn't, doesn't really, he ends up in jail. Like he doesn't get anything really good for himself. He doesn't get the good. He just destroyed another person's uh, happiness. And so this is spiteful envy. And I claim, obviously, it should be clear that this is kind of the worst <laughs> of all. 
right? It's morally bad. You do lots of bad things to innocent others, but it's also bad for you. It's prudentially bad. Maybe you get a little bit of satisfaction from destruction, but that's pretty short-lived. Aggressive envy, however, is importantly different. And what I what I argue in my book is that my taxonomy is more nuanced, even compared to the, the psychological one, even though it draws from, from their empirical evidence, because malicious envy... Um, once you divide it into aggressive and spiteful envy, you can see that aggressive envy is trickier because it does bring some prudential advantages. Imagine someone who's a little, has some psychopathic tendency and not a lot of conscience or like not a lot of empathy or sympathy, however you want to define it for others. And they're really smart and good at tricking other people and thinking that, you know, they are better than others while they're just sabotaging others, maybe, you know, in this immoral ways. And that's a lot worse in some ways from because from a perspective of a society, you know, you can get away with murder or at least with a lot of bad things. And so it seems that there are some prudential advantages, which spiteful envy doesn't have. And so from a moral education perspective, it's harder to say, you know, uh, crime doesn't pay. We, in this case, it seems like it, it may pay right? in some cases. Uh, this kind of envy can can bring genuine advantages. Um, again, at least from some perspective, some people think, you know, immorality is never good for you, but that's a more complicated debate. And again, finally, even on the benign sign, I think that there is a kind of envy that genuine brings can be, it's not morally or prudentially bad and actually can be even morally good. And that's emulative envy. Um, and then inert envy is not morally, it's not prudentially good. It's not good for the agent. Again, remember, I'm sulking in the corner, being all despondent and thinking like, oh, poor me. But I don't do bad things to others. And so these are all a little different from a normative perspective. Mm. So you, you also suggest that it's possible to grow through different kinds of envy to arrive at a healthier, more pro-social. Yeah form of envy and you use some kind of pop cultural examples to illustrate that. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about how that works, how you see it working and how you think people can accomplish that kind yeah. of pro-social growth. Yes. So some of the things I talk about have to do with envy in loving relationships. That's a topic that is particularly dear to my heart because I think a lot of time um, there is this invitation um, to forego negative affect emotions at all costs and envy again is a particularly bad reputation. And so there's a lot of self-help discussion about how, you know, about what are usually called toxic relationships. So if another person is envious, you know, just cut them out of your life. Um, and a lot of times I don't hear enough talk of, well, what if you are envious? And a lot of it, we have evidence that most people feel envy at some point or other, some people more than others, but it's a normal human emotion. Um, and sometimes the invitation is to just suppress it at all costs, as, at, at all costs. Or there is this idea that love is the antidote to, is an antidote to the the poison of envy. 
But actually, that's I, I, I disagree. I think a lot of times envy and love thrive in similar conditions for a variety of reasons. And we can just look around and see, I mean, sibling rivalry, basically, it's about that. It's about loving your sibling, but also feeling a lot of envy and jealousy in some cases. Um, a lot of friendly, a lot of friendly competition is about that. You, you can have a lot of friends with whom you have this sort of um, frenemy sometimes relation. Um, and I think I, I, I appeal in particular to two case studies, one from the novels by Elena Ferrante, um, my brilliant friend, where I think we see um, the beauty, but also the pitfalls of a friendship that is very intense, very full of love, but also full of envy of all four kinds, by the way, even the worst kinds. And where, however, you see that these friends could have not especially one of them perhaps could have not grown to be who they are now without envying their brilliant friend and i think the genius of the title in my view i don't i don't know what literary critics think about this but is that you know there's not just there are these two friends and we might think at the beginning that the brilliant friend is only one of them but i think if the more you read you realize well they're both brilliant in their own ways and they both envy each other they both think of the other person as the brilliant friend and so there is this constant you can think of it, arms race has a bad connotation, but it's a sort of arms race uh, where, however, you 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 can pull yourself up reciprocal, like in, in reciprocal way, you can motivate each other to self-improve. And I think we see this more uh, luminous portrayal of this kind of relationship in the TV show uh, Grey's Anatomy, where the relationship between um, Meredith Grey and uh, Christina Yang, these are two, it exemplifies this um, friendly rivalry where these two brilliant surgeons really care about surgery and they sometimes compete pretty intensely for the same, you know, fancy award or for achieve or for doing a certain surgery, for being able to execute a surgery. But at the same time, that doesn't destroy their friendship and actually makes it better. It makes it stronger. And they both, because I mean, the 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 background idea here is that excellence is inherently comparative. A lot of time, people say, "Don't compare yourself to others; just focus on yourself." But I think that's naive. It's just not how it works. It's not how human psychology works, and it's not like how we uh, assess ourselves or others. Like most of our judgments, actually, if you look carefully at them, are comparative in nature. And so what it means to be excellent, it means fundamentally to be better than average. <laughs> and so you do have to look at each other and compare yourself to people in the same comparison class. And that's how you grow. And, and that can be, again, a tool of self-growth. But again, it needs to be the emulative kind of envy and not the other kinds. Otherwise, uh, we are in trouble. Otherwise, we end up acting ways that are either immoral or um, not, pr not prudent, imprudent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in, in relation to that, it struck me that there's kind of a distinction between admiration and envy. And normally we would think of admiration as being the more optimal, more laudable kind of emotion yes. to feel, but somewhat counterintuitively, you suggest that maybe we should, at least in some circumstances, prefer envy to admiration why might that be because you know we can't fully choose what emotions to feel first of all so there is a question of what emotion is going to arise in this specific circumstance 
And admiration and envy are two distinct emotions. They're actually quite different once you look at them uh, carefully. Admiration is a positive affect emotion, which usually arises when you perceive yourself, when you perceive, the, the emphasis is not even on myself, when you perceive someone else to be superior, but with regard to a good that is not necessarily in a domain of self-importance. So again, I greatly admire uh, uh, you know, scientists uh, who might be even my age and my gender, but they are scientists. They do something completely different or going back to soccer players. Or it might be that I admire other philosophers, but maybe they're much older than me or they're they're not similar enough to me. And so then the focus is not on me, it's on them. It's like looking at a beautiful painting, right? It's inspiring, but it doesn't trigger... Um, a, an emotional response that makes me focus on my self-improvement, at least not in the short term. There is some evidence that suggests that um, admiration can trigger self-improvement, but in a, in a longer term, like it, it has to do more with ideals, with the big picture. So it doesn't, it doesn't have the narrow focus of attention that envy has. And so they play different functions. And so it's good. We sometimes admire some people and that motivates us on a certain trajectory. Maybe as a kid, you admire an astronaut and then you go to astronaut school or that probably is not something that exists, but you know what I mean? Um, but but you know but in the meantime you envy your friend who's getting better grades in math and that's going to help you become an astronaut in a different way so we have evidence that these emotions do different things and sometimes you can choose right um and sometimes you can envy and admire the same person but not at the same time you have to look at them in different ways and so while i think sometimes admiration it, admiration is great if you can feel it but sometimes what you have is just a situation that triggers envy and again that's going to be more motivated in the short term sometimes you know i admire greatly a lot of people but that does that motivate me to get up early in the morning and you know do my workout you know maybe I admire misty copeland beautiful ballerina whom I, i'll never resemble to ever no matter you know no matter what but maybe if i hear my friend who tells me oh look what i can do in my dad you know in our dance class and i'm like Oh, how did you do that? Well, I woke up at 6 a.m. You know, I wake up every morning at 6 a.m. to go swimming, right? Admiration is not going to make me wake up at 6 a.m. to go swimming. Actually, in fact, envy doesn't that trick either in my case. But so they play different functions. We have different emotions for a reason. And so you have to work with the emotional tools that you got. <laughs> so given that we can, it seems, have good or at least benign forms of envy and bad, even truly invidious forms of envy. I mean, you talk not only about spiteful, but also mm -hmm. uber spiteful. Yes. Envy. Yep. How do we sort of train ourselves to focus on or identify and trend toward the positive or at least benign forms of envy as opposed to the destructive forms? Yeah. Well, that's the million dollar, that's probably now billion dollar question, isn't it? Um, it's hard. I think that here, you know, I can give some suggestions, but that becomes, starts becoming the, the expertise of, you know, counselors and clinical psychologists. Um, and, but I do think that there are several things we can do. Um, partially the policymaker, actually, because there are some of these issues are political. I think we want to create a society where 
Okay. This is going to sound where people feel loved. <laughs> no, but really, we want to create a society with well-adjusted individuals who develop confidence in themselves um, from the start, who are exposed to a plurality of activities. We all are we are all born with a lot of different potential, and then slowly that dwindles until we have just one path left. And sometimes that path isn't even that exciting for some of us, unfortunately, right? So we want to create a place where everybody can succeed in different ways and across multiple dimensions so that even if in some cases you're not going to do as well, it's it's that's obviously like nobody's good at everything, right? But everyone is good at something. So you might feel envious of some people, for some things that you can't have, maybe you'll never have, but you will do well along other dimensions. And in some cases, there may be some obtainable goods that are within your reach and you have the kind of self-confidence, growth mindset, um, uh, working ethics, um, and perhaps material resources. And that's where, you know, policies matter to work toward achieving those goods. So I really do think that, it's 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 not easy. It requires um, individual uh, work on oneself, perhaps um, counseling and other sorts of psychological support. And uh, it requires a society where everyone is given the chance to thrive. So it's it's pretty ambition, <laughs> ambitious solution. Uh, but I think it, it's a complex problem that requires a you know a multi pronged solution. But again, of course, it's and also honestly. You're, it's unavoidable. You will be envious of some people, even in the most ideal society. In fact, there's, well, that's a whole other discussion about, you know, socialism and Marxist society and class envy, but I don't think we can get into that this one time. These other, that's a conversation for another time. But I think even in the most ideal, not necessarily, you know, socialist, but in the most ideal society, um, you are going to feel envy because envy thrives in the small differences. So at some point also you need to be mindful and accepting of your envy and just kind of acknowledge it and move on and 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 sort of feel, you know, just to sort of, and then kind of redirect your efforts towards something else, right? So that it doesn't fester and it doesn't devolve into the most into the most kind of intense. I think a little bit, even a little bit of spiteful envy is not the end of the world, right? You can have a pang of, of spiteful envy and think, ah, I wish that ice cream falls on the ground, <laughs> right? If only. But then that's a feeling that is short-lived. And then you want to move your flourishing life and feel other kinds of envy instead of letting that envy fester. And then you really go and bump the other person. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, building on that, I wonder if in closing, you could talk a little bit, not from a social perspective, but from a personal perspective about how we might think about envy in a productive way that yeah. might encourage us individually to trend toward the benign or beneficial forms yeah. of envy that you describe as opposed to the destructive or yeah. at least unpleasant forms and yeah. suggest we ought to avoid? I think the first step is really to acknowledge one's envy and practice noticing one's envy. Envy is, a, is an emotion that hides and masks itself because it is this sneaky, envy is this sneaky emotion that hides and masks itself um, because it's um, it's not just unpleasant 
and it's not just full of uh, social and moral stigma, but it also tells us that we feel inferior with regard to a good of self-importance, right? And so it's really hard to feel envy. And often it's unconscious, uh, or at least, you know, it's below the, le- the, 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 level, the level of awareness. And even when we, we realize we have it, we kind of want to hide, you know, uh, sweep it under the rug and not pay attention to it. And I think that's when things go wrong, especially in relationships. Uh, that's really a bad idea. So, and I think sometimes we should be able to talk about our envy with people when we feel it, right? Um, so I think acknowledgement is the first step. Understanding what the what this emotion is telling you, why are you feeling envy? What does it signal? What kind of information can you gather? Is 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 this emotion telling you something new that you didn't know about how you look at this other person, what you value? So getting all the information possible. And then again, you can remind yourself, right, of the things that you can do. You can sometimes uh, once you do this work of acknowledgement and analysis, you might realize that, you know, maybe maybe that good that you envy is not actually that good. Maybe you should direct your energy to something else. Um, so I do think that a lot of introspection and a lot of to honest work with oneself is necessary. And then I think in general, um, there is this mindfulness turn in in. Um, you know, mental health. And I think it is a good turn. We do have a lot of evidence that uh, mindfulness meditation and other mindful approaches to um, our emotions are actually helpful for self-regulating ourselves. And so I think practicing mindfulness um, is, you know, a generally good practice uh, and can help us with, you know, emotions like envy in particular. But, you know, it's it's not easy. <laughs> I don't know that I have, you know, I, I, I feel envy and sometimes notwithstanding all I know about it, I struggle with it. But also just a general reminder, honestly, on this sometimes popular culture, like, you know, the kind of ancient wisdom sayings are helpful, thinking that, you know, the the green on the other side of the fence is always greener. Just remind yourself that it's a perception thing. Right. Something we don't know what's going behind closed doors, what's beyond, you know, once you get closer to the fence, you might see that there are patches of dirt here and there. And no nobody's nobody's, you know, always happy. Nobody's always lucky. Every every person who seems more successful than us is probably looking up to the next person. At some point you have to, there are some cases where you have to take yourself out of the race and focus on things that are less dependent on comparison right and there are some things that i think are overall um you know more shareable goods that we can all participate in well sarah thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about your excellent book i hope listeners will will check it out because there's a lot more in the book than we were able to cover on on the show thank you so much for inviting me brian it was great
pass on the street There's a feeling deep within my heart And it almost tears me apart What to do? I'm so in love with you I envy anyone You happen to know I envy any place You happen to go Will I ever find a little Or must I go on this way Wanting your love from day to day Your 